Scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel according to Matthew in chapter 24, verses 1 to 14. So, invite your reverent attention to the public reading of uh, the Holy Word of God as we find it here in the 24th chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus left the temple and was going away when His disciples came to point out to Him the buildings of the temple. But He answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. May God add His blessings to the reading and the hearing of the word. That most all of us uh, want to know the future, and so Jesus will oblige us this morning uh, in light of the future of the church. All of that discourse uh, begins here, Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, till the final verse of the 25th chapter. But what we oftentimes miss in our quest to know the future, of which Jesus will oblige us, is that the knowledge of the future comes with a very, very high ethical demand. That becomes very clear in these two chapters. In other words, okay, so you know the future of the church, what's going to happen to the church. Also understand uh, the ethical demand that presses upon all of us who learn this future. And that's probably the more dominant factor that is here in our two chapters that uh, we began to study this morning. Uh, it is something of a survival guide. So as I go through the text, I encourage you to think of it in that way. Uh, Not unlike uh, pilots uh, who are shot down behind enemy lines, uh, learn how to survive. Uh, 
how to uh, evade being captured or perhaps again yeah, return to uh, the service of their country. Just simply going to call the text uh, more than just the future. I'm going to call it a survival guide, uh, answering the questions to how you should live your life in light of the future that awaits us. It's a great deal of controversy over our understanding of the future. I'm simply uh, going to tell you that I hold that the future's begun. It's begun in Jesus. Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that all of the promises of God have their amen in Christ. All eschatology, everything that's future has started. Our text is a shift from the narrative marked by the intensity of the persecution of Jesus in the temple by the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, to the fifth or Olivet Discourse, which again deals with the future that is about to break out, the life of the church and that will run its course until the second coming. The question that the apostles bring to Christ is twofold. If you look at the third verse, when, when will the temple be destroyed, and what are the signs of your second coming? I believe that the subject matter of the destruction of the temple is entertained by the first 28 verses of Matthew chapter 24. So our study begins with a very near reference as to something that the apostles are going to see in the destruction of the temple. And then our Lord will shift to his second coming that, again, is a much more distant or far reference that engages all of us as members of the church of Jesus Christ. Both events are parallel. And I think that's very instructive. Again, the destruction of the temple and what are the signs that are going to accompany the destruction of the temple and then the signs that are going to accompany the second coming. Uh, both of those events end in judgment. Destruction of the temple, the firing of the world and the final and last great judgment. Two parallel events, we learn from both of them. Uh, and We learn about all the intervening events that occur between these great cataclysmic uh, acts. Uh, the first uh, great event occurs in uh, the life of uh, the apostolic company. The second, again, is not yet. Uh, but the signs have begun, and that, I think, is the ethical issue that we must struggle with. In light of uh, the prophetic events that uh, answer the question of the apostles, uh, he begins to warn them. Uh, the first warning is found in the first three verses, and Jesus warns about the destruction of the temple. Seems kind of a distant event to us, and we, what, uh, you know, what's the big deal about the temple? Well, again, you must understand what it would have meant, uh, to the nation of Israel. It would be like our Lord saying, the houses of Congress are going to be destroyed. The White House is going to be destroyed. That would probably quicken us. We'd want to know what, you know, what are the signs that might reference that? Uh, because to the nation of Israel, the temple was everything. It was going to be destroyed. Uh, and that's the essence of the, of the first warning in the first three verses. As you know, our Lord is leaving the temple for the last time. That in and of itself is a cataclysmic event. 
they have forsaken their opportunity and said no to him, and so he is leaving for the last time. Again, verse 1, and Jesus came out from the temple and was going away. You and I know that he's going to the cross. In Mark and Luke, the apostles turn our Savior to the majesty of the complex. Again, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. It's a very instructive text. So I think understanding something of the nature of, uh, of all of us. Mark 13, 1. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. It's never buildings, ladies and gentlemen. It's Jesus that is the cataclysmic question of our time. Now again, I'm not against buildings. I mean, I understand we all, we all need a roof. God has blessed us here, I think, with a beautiful building. But it's never the building. And I know so many Christians who, really the truth is secondary. They have to have a majestic building and architecture and a pipe organ and this and that and this and that. The this and the that is the issue. The building is never the important reality. It's Christ that we must reckon with. They have rejected him, and therefore the complex will be destroyed. I believe that occurred 70 AD. Titus and his four legions breached the complex and utterly destroy it. The central most pressing issue of our times is not architecture or geography or beauty. It is Christ. And without Him, all is lost. Now, I remember one of the great reminders of this reality is the study of the Scottish Covenanters who would break the law and go into the forest to serve Christ only to be hunted by the agents of the king and to be killed if they were so caught. They forsook buildings for the reality of worshiping Christ in spirit and in truth. That should be the pressing reality of our times. I think we chase so many secondary things when Christ is the overriding, pressing mandate. I'm not against choirs. I'm not against music. I'm not against all of these things, but they are utterly secondary. And the truth, of course, is primary. Again, I remind you, without Christ, all is lost. The building will not save you. He can. The judgment of uh, the breaching of the city and destruction of the temple, again, is a harbinger of a greater destruction, is it not? So when we study the destruction of the temple, we're really uh, reminded that there's a greater reality yet to come in the coming of Christ. We don't think in those terms today. I mean, do we ever hear any sermons on sin, repentance, discipleship, the coming judgment, that God will bring all things under judgment, every thought, every careless deed? That's the reality of uh, what should press upon us as we study and look at uh, the destruction of the temple. God will bring all things under judgment. What a pressing reality to flee to Christ if you don't know him. Because he's the only place of safety. 
The temple complex uh, was totally raised and sown with blood and salt at the utter disgust of the Roman legions in their warfare with the zealots. I remind you that words of the Apostle Peter, that judgment begins with the house of God. We must embrace the truth of this reality. Remember reading in Arthur Pink's very brief book on the attributes of God that there are more references to hell and damnation than there are to the love of God. Is a reminder that we must embrace this concept because it is essential to understanding who Christ is and what he did for us upon the cross. Namely, he took the wrath of God that we so richly deserved. It fell upon him and was totally satisfied. But judgment will come nonetheless. The apostolic company will look at the near issues that embrace that, but all of us, uh, the distant issue of the reality of the visible coming of Christ in the armies of God. Apostle Paul reminds uh, the Corinthian church of this because they were forgetting their way. Were they not? There was immorality that had come into the church. Uh, some of uh, the wealthy people were hogging all the wine at the agape feast and becoming drunk. Uh, brethren were suing brethren and on and on. And uh, Paul tells them about Christ. The end of the ages has come, Paul says. It's a reminder of the urgency of the reality of Christ and his presence in the life of the church. So the first warning, it's just simply Christ. The reminder that, again, I don't want to make light of buildings or architecture or architects or music or all of the secondary things. importance of a nursery, the importance of the Sunday school program. But never, never forget the primacy of Christ in your pursuit of Him. Because in the final reality, everything else is just everything else. Second warning, reminder of the a proper ethical response to the end time tribulation is the description of the times, again, verses 4 to 14. Uh, Christ isn't going to say when, but he's going to describe the times. And we must understand the times in which we live. It's a warning, again, first to the apostolic company, secondly to the church. And as I've suggested, uh, the first part of this chapter deals with the destruction of the temple the first part of their question. And the description speaks immediately again to the twelve, but distantly to us, uh, because I believe the signs have a continuous historical fulfillment, present-day reality, uh, beyond the immediate audience. There are many in the church, of which I am not numbered among, that hold that all of this is future. I am not numbered among that company. Uh, the first sign, imposters, verses 4 to 5. And Christ uh, warns the disciples immediately and distantly us about the coming of imposters so that they're not deceived. Uh, the basic idea uh, 
in verse 4 is to protect them from making premature assessments about the times. Because in the great crises of the time, it makes it a time that's ripe for the coming of deception. And they are not to wander from him as false Christs will deceive many. One of the great pressing issues of the church today beyond Christ is that I believe we have been invaded by imposters. Text that we will look at uh, time and again as we look at the Olivet Discourse. Encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, uh, verses 18 to 19. Uh, children, it is the last hour. I believe uh, the phrase last hour is an allusion uh, to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, particularly Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. Uh, a reminder of uh, the outbreak of tribulation. Uh, and if that allusion is indeed correct, and I believe that it is, uh, John is saying it is the last hour that the end times have begun, prophesied by Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, a reference, I think, to an incarnation of evil in an individual. But John says, even now many Antichrists have arisen, and from this we know it is the last hour. I believe in many cases, I say this with a great deal of sadness, Many churches are dangerous places to be. Uh, because while there is a future Antichrist, uh, his uh, minions have already invaded the church. The onslaught has begun. And notice what John goes on to say as he describes them, they went out from us because they were not really of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. In John's solid teaching in the church, uh, the Antichrist left because they were exposed. I trust in the grace of God that it's occurring everywhere in the church today, but somewhat suspicious nonetheless. Uh, look at uh, 1 John chapter 4 and verse 3. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, uh, namely, uh, the spirit of the Antichrist, verse 3, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Uh, in other words, verse 3, uh, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now is already in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is present in the church today. Prophetically announced by Christ, and uh, validated by the apostolic company. So that imposters are markers that this prophecy has begun. And the ethical element that is really the essential is you're not to fall prey to their teaching, you ought to leave. When I read of these great historic denominations in the American church that are engaging in overt acts of immorality with respect to ordination. The house is on fire. You don't have any time to hang around. 
And I understand the argument. Oh, darling, but all our friends are here and, 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 and the pipe organ is just majestic. It's the best in Oklahoma City. I'm sorry. The house is on fire. You have to leave. Because of the danger of imposters and falling prey. I used the illustration in Sunday school class this morning that Madame Curie, uh, she died by handling that which she gave her life to study, radioactivity. You can't play around with radioactivity. It will eventually kill you, and it killed her. That's the warning that Christ is giving to the church. You play with false doctrine. You play with redefining the great historical truths of the church, and you are playing with radioactivity. problem with radioactivity in the initial stages is it's poisoning you. You don't feel it. And therefore, you cannot truly uh, understand the gravity of the danger that you've embraced into your soul. And so it is uh, with false teaching and redefining all the great terms of the faith. Ethical element, don't fall prey. Get out while there's still time. Great illustration of this uh, as a continuous uh, fulfillment of uh, the warning is the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 heightens uh, the ethical element, verses 12 to 15. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however... Here's the ethical imperative. Continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The ethical imperative is a continuance in the faith and the importance of the Word of God to protect us from imposters. The second sign, verses 6 to 8, is war and natural disasters. Again, the immediate reference is to the war between the zealots and Rome. But our own age is filled with warfare. Again, continuous historical application of the text and the future prospects thereof. Natural disasters accompany the times. Again, these signs are indications of the outbreak of the end-time tribulation. I mean, we see it in Christ, do we not? He's about to go to the cross. He has been persecuted by the Pharisees and Sadducees. And his earthly demise is but a few days away. What happened to him happens to his people. The one for the many. The corporate head tells us what will happen to us. He was persecuted and all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The metaphor of the woman in labor is an apt one given the increasing intensity of labor. It's the importance of the signs that uh, they will surge 
in greater levels of intensity, but the end is not yet, Jesus says. Important factor is the intensity. I think we are experiencing doctrinal failure in the American church, the likes of which we have never seen. It's always been present, but the intensity and the acceptance of it is quite remarkable. But it should not surprise us because that's the future of the church. But the end of the final judgment of the parousia is, again, not yet. The third sign, verses 9 to 12, is apostasy. We're falling away. Again, our Savior is not dealing with the world in general. He's dealing with the covenant community. Now, that's the importance of the sign. Falling away in apostasy in the life of the church. A rejection of historic orthodoxy in the Word of God. Notice verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. My reminder that the great end time tribulation has begun. I understand it has different levels of intensity, but I was reminded of this the other day, and someone quoted the reality there have been more martyrs in the present centuries than there ever were in the history of the church. You look at the Middle East and the killing of Christians. It's remarkable. That is the future of the life of the church. I don't know whether it will occur in America or not. I don't have a clue. But I know that we are facing doctrinal persecution, the likes of which the church, I think, is rarely experienced and is surging in intensity. The analog is, who cares? We should care. The tribulation will break out upon the people of God in betrayal, killings, and hatred. Again, a reminder that the people of God go through tribulation. And I might add, by God's grace and the gospel, they are protected from being deceived. That's why it is so important to come to Christ and to stay near to Christ. Because He protects us from deception. As a great reminder of this in our Lord's high priestly prayer, it constitutes in a measure this morning of the gospel itself, uh, John chapter 17. Twelfth verse. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. That Christ guarded the eleven, even though the apostolic company had been invaded by an imposter in Judas. But even that was part of the decree of reprobation and hardening that we know from the Gospel of John and certainly here clearly expressed. But of the eleven, he guarded them. Take Christ out of the equation and they would have all gone the way of Judas. What is the difference between you and holding to a historic orthodoxy and the church that is driving faster and faster down a blind alley? Christ is the difference. And he guards and he keeps his people. If you are not a Christian, you will not survive the deception. The forces are too strong. They will carry you away. Come to Christ. He alone guards effectively and efficaciously his people. 
point of the tribulation is the church emerges successful from it because of the spirit that guards the people of God, the true people of God. Again, the tone is very sinister here. It speaks to a falling away and, and a shake-up within the covenant community. In, uh, the, in the war between the zealots and Rome, uh, fertile ground for uh, false Christ and imposters to come, and many were led astray. Continuous uh, reminder today is to apply that in our own lives, uh, not to be deceived. Again, it's within the covenant community that this shakeup is occurring. Uh, they will engage in betrayal and hatred. Again, if you look at the 10th verse, New American Standard reads, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Uh, the word uh, fall away is literally caused to stumble. It's a word we've looked at time and again uh, in Gospel of Matthew. Let's look at uh, 11th chapter in the 6th verse. Blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me, Jesus says. Uh, chapter 13, verse 21, another use of this word. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away or stumbles. People stumble over Christ and the word of God all of the time. It's a dangerous sign. It will become more infectious in the life of the church as time goes on until the second coming. And the difficulties of the time will incite extreme disloyalty. Reminder of Judas, is it not? Christ befriended him, cared for him, provided for him, taught him, loved him. It's disloyal. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, but realize this, this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. It's a difficult prophecy, is it, is, is it not, but it's uh, being fulfilled in our very own age. And into the fray false prophets arise, deceiving many. You think about this. American church, I believe, is uh, rapidly losing its uh, grasp on historic orthodoxy and descending into rank subjectivity. The great prayers of the Apostle Paul, I pray that you might know God. We don't know God anymore. We feel Him. And your feelings are your feelings. I'm all for feelings. I understand we're emotional beings, but we must know God and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, Paul says. That we are to be orthodox in our knowledge. The key marker today seems to be spirituality absent truth, because truth is relative. You see, the political correctness of the world has come into the church, and it will destroy the church. 
and gut it in terms of orthodoxy. And men are not saved by feelings. You're saved by the objective reality of the work of Christ. That you must know and understand. But that too is a sign of the end times and we should not be surprised. Remind you of the gospel and the importance in terms of the ethical imperative. First uh, John chapter 2, 24th verse. And as for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Have we left the beginnings? Great reminder of this truth. The very short epistle, Jude, in the third verse. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, imagine that. We have a common salvation. It's not your opinion about it and someone else's opinion about it and what you feel or what they feel. It is the common salvation of the church. But you said, I felt a necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. A deposit left with the church that it is to adhere to and continue in. That's the ethical imperative. The truth of the gospel remains the same throughout the centuries. It seemingly the church today is desperate to try to make the truth relevant. You don't make the truth relevant. The truth is relevant by the de facto reality that it is truth. And it's always the truth and never changes. It's not truth for one person and a different truth for the other. It is the common salvation deposited and left once for all with the church of Jesus Christ. You stray from that. You are playing with radioactivity. Uh, the result of the departure, uh, Jesus says, is a cold heart. Verse 12, and because of lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. The word lawlessness may be an allusion to Daniel chapter 12. Again, uh, it's a warning to the covenant community that Antiochus Epiphanes would come and introduce lawlessness to the covenant community, and uh, many would turn to it to survive the persecution. Uh, Daniel is writing to protect them. It applies, I think, generationally to us. Uh, not to embrace lawlessness uh, because it will uh, destroy love within the life of the church. The effect of lawlessness on the community will uh, be to cause hearts to turn cold. If you will, a freeze sets in. A great blizzard sets in in the hearts of many because of departure from the truth leads to lawlessness and leads to cold hearts. I'll remind you of the warning to the church at Ephesus. 
We don't think, by the way, in terms of warning confessing Christians any longer, but it's exactly what's occurring in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and really the rest of the book. But uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake uh, and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. It's a reminder that we're to love Christ to the end and not leave him and not turn to all the things of the world that seek to capture and ensnare our hearts. The church at Ephesus is being warned, you have left your first love. I simply remind you by way of application to stoke up the fire and the embers of your heart to the love of Christ because everything else is utterly secondary in light of the coming of the Savior and judgment, finality of it. The reminder, of course, is 70 A.D., but for us, it's much more intense judgment, uh, the growing intensity of the falling away from the truth. Have you ever met a Christian who, at some point, it was very fervent for Christ, and then over time falls away and becomes utterly disaffected? That's what this is. Their hearts turn cold to the things of God. True salvation is an increasing, surging, the love of Christ. Growing in intensity, the application of redemption. People become disaffected. I I mean, it's difficult to grasp and understand, but I, I seemingly see it in my own life more and more. It's as if, well, God didn't meet my expectations, so I'm out of here. Be very careful of thinking that way. God doesn't exist to meet our expectations. We exist to meet Him. Again, turning back, it's very interesting uh, commentary on this. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. First phrase of verse 2. For men will be lovers of self. That is a decisive commentary on the age in which we live. Men are in love with themselves. They're walking down lover's lane, holding their own hands. It's the darndest thing I've ever seen, but it's a commentary in the end times. But notice, as the description of men runs its course, uh, the final phrase of verse 4, rather than lovers of God, between those two extremes is a howling spiritual wilderness of utter peril. When you begin to love yourself and put your interests before God, this is what you will end up. It's the subject matter of our Lord's warning to the church at Ephesus. And may we be so warned to stay close to Christ, to pray that the Spirit of God would so work within us that with every day in our hearts, He would become more and more and we would become less and less. Lovers of self rather than lovers of God. Between these two poles are the polar ice caps that grip so many hearts, life of the church today. The final two verses of uh, this initial paragraph of a warning of uh, coming of Rome to destroy the temple is how to respond to the warnings. 
really how to survive in dangerous times. How do you survive when dangerous times come? Again, the immediate reference is to the apostolic company, but we can make appropriate application to us. Uh, it's found everywhere in the scriptures, but uh, how to respond to the dangerous times that exist in the life of God's people today. Well, of course, our response is not to take the bait. Look at verse 13, but the one who endures to the end is he shall be saved. Turn back to Matthew chapter 10, 22nd verse. It's simply a continual marker. Our Lord previously taught his disciples, Matthew chapter 10, the 22nd verse, and you will be hated by all on account of my name, but is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. You must persevere to the end. A continuance to the end is a mark of true faith. remind you of uh, our responsibility as Christians. We have a duty before God. Colossians uh, chapter 1 is a fit reminder of our duty before God in light of the end times in which we live. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister, were to continue in the gospel, steadfast and firmly grounded and rooted, and not moved away. I find it amazing, because it's almost epidemic in the life of the church, that many people cannot even define the great gospel of Christ. I oftentimes ask people, would you define for me the doctrine of justification as the essence of the gospel? And it's incredible to me. But it's a reminder of the great migration that's occurring in the life of the church. We are seemingly wholesale moving away from the gospel of Christ to everything that's a non-essential. Well, let me repair to grace. <laughs> We need to be reminded of our responsibility. But let me remind you of the gospel and the grace of God that makes the church, the true church, uh, not the visible church, but the invisible church, totally different. And that, of course, is the grace of God. Apart from grace, we would all be swept away by the flood. Let me give you a note, sir. I know some of you are strong swimmers. Johnny Weissmiller in the flesh here at Grace Bible Church. You think you can beat the ocean tide? Let me tell you, you can't. The riptides are incredible force. In fact, uh, you study the manuals, uh, don't swim against it. It'll beat you and wear you out and you'll drown. Swim parallel to the beach until it lets go of you. Is there a riptide in your heart? Recover the gospel. But let's look at the gospel and the grace of God. John chapter 6, what makes us different? And the answer is Christ. John chapter 6, verse 37 to 39. If you're asking yourself, how can I survive the onslaught? Here's the answer. 
All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Credible expression of the grace of God. We come to Christ and he doesn't send us away. We belong to him. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That's the greatness of our Savior. He calls us into his presence. He saves us by his power. And he keeps us from falling away. And he loses none of those given to him by the Father. Grace of God in the gospel. It's a doctrine of election. The Father gives to the Son and the Son purchases and the Spirit draws us to him. That is the single most important reality of the difference between us and the wholesale defections seemingly occurring everywhere. Christ. The gospel. I love the metaphor, Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. The church of which the author is writing is considering leaving the faith. They've come under persecution. What happens when you fall under persecution? It rattles your faith, it shakes your confidence, and sometimes you say to yourself, it's not worth it, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. The author writes to check them, and he uses a very not powerful nautical metaphor that the hope of the gospel of Christ himself is an anchor for the soul. That when you know the Savior, he anchors you to protect you from the tides, sweeping you out into the open ocean and the violent storms. You know the Savior? If you don't know him, I will simply tell you he is the only anchor of the soul. Everything else is but a mirage. Great reminder of the gospel, the grace of God. The perseverance and continuance are essential elements of the faith, and they are one for us at the cross in the application of our redemption. It's the ethical imperative of the end times, our survival guide. Go the distance. Continue in the faith. Just a product of the gospel, what it does in our hearts. Secondly, our answer to all of the falsehood, verse 14, is to preach the gospel. And this gospel, the kingdom, shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. This is our, char- our charter against the disloyalty of our times. That the church is to be militant. We sometimes collapse in on ourselves. Well, I, I joined this organization, and we forget about the rest of the world. We simply collapse in upon ourselves Jesus is telling us that part of the survival guide is to proclaim the gospel to the world. We're to be militant in the proclamation of the gospel. And we will be, therefore, triumphant coming of Christ. I was quite uh, encouraged by this reality last weekend uh, when uh, Mrs. Hoke... Uh, one of the missionaries we support in Africa who told us that in the bowels of the jungles of the Congo, 
the pygmies know the name Grace Bible Church. Don't let up. Continue to preach the gospel. Amidst all of the, the perfidy and disloyalty that exists, never let go of that essential. Christ and his gospel. And in providence and in God's good time, the gospel will run its course. And then the great assize and the coming will occur. A number of years ago, there was a Olympic athlete of the continent of Africa. Uh, generally, uh, the great long distance uh, races are owned by the Africans, if my memory serves me correctly. But uh, this particular gentleman was not a particularly gifted runner. And in uh, process of time of running the case, he fell down or was pushed down or whatever the case might be, was very seriously hurt. Uh, he had to hobble, uh, blood uh, on his clothing, his body. Uh, most people have just give up. I mean, you're hurt. You don't have to finish the race. I mean, come on. Get, you know, we understand you fell. Uh, we understand you're hurt. You, you don't have to finish. Well, he finally, several hours after uh, the race had declared its winners, crossed the finish line. Someone asked him, why didn't you just give up? His response are timeless words for the church of Jesus Christ. My country did not send me here to begin the race, but to finish it. And that is the summons, persevering, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. We begin the race in the gospel, we continue it in the gospel, and we'll finish it triumphant because of the gospel. May that be your hope. In the ever-present reality that drives you to fall more and more in love with Christ, who redeemed you from death and hell, and gave his life a ransom the one for the many. Most people today, certainly true in the church, are infatuated with the future. For me, it started in Christ. And the ethical demands are great to be faithful until it comes for us. And thank God in the gospel, he dispatches his spirit to ensure just that reality. Responsibility to be sure. Grace, of course, to be sure. May both of those great truths have their great marriage in our church. May duty hold fast to grace because we know grace holds fast to us. And thank God it does.